Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to the book of Jude. Basically, turn to the book of Revelation, and it's the page right before that. Um, We have been... On Sunday nights, looking at the books of the Bible that are one chapter long, there are five of them. Um, And so tonight we are at the final one, the book of Jude. Jude is probably the most dense of them all. Um, In fact, as I was studying for our time together tonight, um, I thought I may or may not come back and preach Jude again someday over three or four sermons because it really needs more than one sermon, um, but I can't do that right now because as our Sunday night schedule goes, I'm not preaching again on Sunday night until like the, the second half of May, just with different activities that we have, and Sundays we're not going to be here, and so you'd just lose all the context if I tried to start it tonight and pick it back up late in May. Um, I've told you that a friend of mine from seminary and I um, have started picking four books a year about history and reading them together. And so every three months, we read a book together, and we call each month and discuss what we're reading. Um, One of the books that we picked, actually the first book we picked for this year, is called Broadcasting the Faith. Um, It covers the history of radio preachers from from 1920 to 1950 in the United States. Um, So it kind of gives kind of a biography of them and teaches and, and tells what they were teaching on the radio. Some of them, some of them good, some of them bad. Um, it's some kind of crazy preachers like Amy Simple McPherson. And then you had some that were pretty decent like Charles Fuller. Um, but you know what the defining characteristic of all of these radio preachers was? I think there were five of them that we read about. They all chose to be very light on doctrinal depth. They all chose, as far as going deep into the faith that they were teaching on the radio, to just be very surface level, to not go deep. Because they didn't want their preaching to be only liked by one denomination as they preached on the radio. They, um, th- th- they wanted to appeal to a mass audience, and so you can't get too specific if you're going to do that. You've got to stay um, general so that any Christian in America can listen to you and like it. And they thought they were doing something noble by that. They thought that was a noble thing. But the book goes to show how all of the movement of these preachers really was one of the many things that played into the secularization of America. Because the major Christian population bought into this Christianity that is, that is very surface level. And when you have no depth to your, to your faith... Well, things just topple over and other things um, take its place. And so, maybe you wonder, in America, how we went from being a nation that used to have Bible reading and prayer in schools to what we are now. Maybe you wonder how it became acceptable and celebrated for there to be dozens of genders to identify as. Maybe you wonder how we went from one nation under God to practically one nation without God. How did that happen? It's simple. 
our nation assumed doctrine rather than believing doctrine. We, we, we see this progression always in history. The first generation believes the truths of the faith. The second generation assumes the truths of the faith. They were taught them, but they don't really dive deep into them. They just assume that what their parents taught them was the case. Therefore, they don't pass them on to their children. So the third generation forgets the truths of the faith. The first one believes it. The second assumes it. The third forgets it. And that's very much where we're at right now. Um, it, it's very much. It, it was no longer a standard uh, during the 1920s to the 1950s, uh, particularly with these preachers. It, it, it morphed into this thing of it no longer being a standard to be an Orthodox Christian if you believed the right stuff. That, that if you held to the faith once for all delivered to the saints, that that stuff isn't important, they said. You just need to love Jesus, they said. You just need to go to church. Leave all that other stuff to the seminarian. But that's foolish because the fact is Christians, Mormons, Muslims, and Hindus all love Jesus. It's just not the same Jesus. All of them have a Jesus that they love, but it's not all the Jesus of the Bible. And so when you stop caring what people believe, it always leads to worse situations. When we stop teaching kids deep truths of the faith and just teach them moral lessons, we shouldn't be surprised when they grow up not knowing anything about God. When we teach teenagers that God just wants them to make a difference in the world, we shouldn't be surprised when they start supporting the abortion movement and defund the police. Because we didn't define for them what making a difference in the world meant. We just told them they were supposed to do it. We let the world give them th the theology of what it means to change the world. This is the core message of what the book of Jude is about. False doctrine always leads to immorality, so stay orthodox. St stay um, orthodox in your doctrine. And so let's read the whole book. 25 verses. Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, uh, under gloomy darkness until the day of judgment, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. For when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was dis disputing about the body of Moses... He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. 
But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that, all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept, among, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh son from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last times there would be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is, those, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Do you see why I'd like to preach this over three or four sermons? There's a lot in this, so i got to get through the entire book in three or four hours. So, um, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so Jude, Jude, who is he? He's, he calls himself a servant. That's the title he gives himself. Interestingly, that he calls himself a servant of Jesus because Jude was one of the brothers of Jesus. He was the half-brother of Jesus. Obviously, Jesus didn't come from Joseph. He only came from Mary. So Jude was a half-brother of Jesus. That is, Jude shared the same DNA as Jesus did. Yet he doesn't even mention that. He doesn't say anything about the fact that he's a brother of Jesus. He says he's a brother of James, James who was also a brother of Jesus, but he sees himself as not worthy of being counted that close to Jesus. He's just a servant. In fact, you may see in your um, footnotes of your Bible that the Greek word for servant is doulos. That also means slave. Jude sees himself as a bondservant, a slave of Jesus, and that's it. Like that, That's where he's putting himself. That's a sign you know Jude believes the right things, that he's orthodox. He holds to the right truths and he views God properly. He is humble before Christ. If someone doesn't believe the right things about God, you will see it in their character, their attitude, their outlook, and everything about them. This is true overall. It's also true of us day to day. Like, when I'm stressed out, when I'm anxious, it's because in that moment I've stopped believing the right things. 
that God is in control of my life on the throne. When I worry and when I fret and when I lose my mind stressed out, it's because I've taken my eyes off the king who is on the throne in control. I may say I believe it in my head, but it hasn't become true in my heart in that moment. I have to reorient my heart to trust God in that moment and believe the right things. Why is Jude writing? Well, we don't know who he's writing to. He doesn't say. We just know he's writing probably to a church. Um, he, he says that I originally wanted to write to you about our salvation, the salvation we all share. He wanted to write a letter, I don't know, maybe similar to the sermon series I'm preaching on Sunday morning right now, just laying out what it is that our salvation is. But then he heard a report. He heard a report, verse 4, that certain people have crept in unnoticed. Certain people have crept into the church that he's writing to. They, they have false teachers in their midst, and those people have crept in. Kind of sounds like home intruders. They've, they've, they've snuck in, and they're hiding in the closet. They're hiding in the corner, waiting for the right moment to jump out. He says several things about these people. They are designated for condemnation. He says that in verse 4. In other words, they, their destiny, as with the destiny of any sinner who won't repent, was already determined long ago. Anyone who does not repent of their sins and trust in Jesus, they're, they're on a road straight to hell. It's the road they came out of the womb going to, and that's where they're going to end up. It says they pervert, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. In other words, they go around saying, you know, sleep with whoever you want to, because God is a God of grace. He'll forgive you. That's what they're saying. And he says they deny their master. They deny the master, Jesus. They deny him. But they know the truth of Christianity just enough to fool the average Christian. That They know it just enough to fool the person who doesn't go deep in their faith. This is why it's so important that you have discernment in every part of your life. I once saw a um, clip of Glenn Beck. I don't think Glenn Beck is still on Fox News. I could be wrong. Um, but um, from what I understand, he kind of went crazy, and he's no longer on Fox News. Correct me if I'm wrong. But um, this was like 15 years ago. Glenn Beck was on um, Fox News, and he had said, I, I, I saw this, and I'm like, I can't believe he just said that. He said that the original American flag had 13 stars, which we know that. But he said they were not representing the 13 colonies of the United States in the beginning. He said, no, they were representing the 13 tribes of Israel and he's like, well, you, you're saying uh, there, there aren't 13, there's 12 tribes, right? Well, uh, no, one of them split. That's what he said right there on Fox News. And I don't know any biblical scholar who calls them the 13 tribes of Israel, even liberal ones. But you get a Christian who doesn't know much about their faith is sitting there watching Fox News, and they hear that, and they say, well, look at that. The founding fathers thought we were Israel, even though they didn't you got to have discernment, even on moments like that. Jude recognizes this problem in the church, so he instead was led to write a letter appealing to them to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He writes to them to plead with them to hold tight to sound doctrine, because if you don't, it leads to sensuality and immoral living. False doctrine lives, leads to false living. That's what he's saying. So what do you have to believe, if, if we're going to say that you need to be an Orthodox Christian, what do you have to believe to be an Orthodox Christian? What doctrines do you have to hold to 
to be an Orthodox Christian? I've learned when, asking, when answering that question to handle it more on a doctrine-by-doctrine doctrine basis. Because when you, when you end up making a list of you got to believe these 12 things or these 15 things or these 6 things, you always end up leaving something out in the process. Um, I was preparing for this sermon, and, and actually one of the commentaries that I was studying did that. It listed out, it, to be an Orthodox Christian, you got to believe these 12 things. And I, I'm sitting there like, I feel like there's like three or four things missing on this list. And I actually texted a picture to Matthew Waldrop, and I said, is he on the right track here, or, or am I just crazy? And he said, yeah, don't, we shouldn't go listing it out, what, what you have to believe. No, just doctrine by doctrine, that's how, that's how you handle it. But remember what I've told you before. There's first-level issues, there's second-level issues, there's third-level issues. You need to make sure you believe the first-level issues. These are things you have to believe to be an Orthodox saved Christian. You have to believe Scripture is without error. You have to believe Christ is God. You have to believe salvation is by grace through faith. Then you have second-level issues. Those are the things that you probably need to believe to be in agreement with the members of your church. And so if, if someday y'all decided to hire a, a female pastor here, Something tells me that some of you would have a problem with that, and, and others, maybe the younger ones, might not have a problem with that, and that's going to cause some disagreements. It just is. Third-level issues are things we can disagree on and, and still worship together, and we just need to love each other and get over it. Um, things like, you know, which translation of the Bible is the best. So we must, as Jude did, contend for those first-level issues, those things that you have to believe to be an Orthodox Christian. We must faithfully teach them. We must pass them on to our kids. We must loudly and proudly proclaim we believe these things and we will die on that hill. We will. If we don't, the culture slowly forgets them and turns secular. That's what has happened already in America, and that is what will easily happen to churches if we don't hold fast to these things. That is what has started to happen in the church Jude is writing to. So Jude just gives them instruction. He tells them what to do. So verse, that was verses 1 through 4. Verses 5 through 16 talks about how the false teaching corrupts, how it corrupts you, how it corrupts a church, what it does, how it takes root. And what he does first is he just takes them through a tour of the Old Testament, and he shows them a picture of what happened in those stories when they ignored truth, what happened in so many stories in the Old Testament when they stopped believing the right things. So he starts with the people of Israel. That's verse, um, that's verse 5. He talks about the nation of Israel when they came out of, in, out of Egypt in the Exodus. He, he, he says, interestingly, Jesus saved the people out of Egypt, so Jesus was even working before he became flesh. Um, I don't believe Christ came to the earth in, in a pre-incarnate form. A lot of people say that. I, I don't think the Bible teaches that, but um, he was working in the Old Testament. All the Bible points to Jesus. He was working in the Exodus. But afterward, what did he do? It says he destroyed some of those people. Why? Because they did not believe. They didn't hold fast to the faith. They departed from him. Remember what happened. It wasn't long before they left Egypt that they wanted to go back. They got out of a miserable existence that they had been in for 400 years of a terrible tyrant ruling over them. They got out of that. They got out in the wilderness. They didn't have nice food, and so they said, send us back. Let, let us go back to Egypt. They said God didn't care about them, leaving them out in the wilderness. And pretty soon they were worshiping false gods. They, they got Aaron 
which I always make fun of my parents that they named me after Aaron because he was such a great priest. And I'm like, yeah, but he made the golden calf. But um, pr- pretty soon they get Aaron, they get him, make, a, make us a cow to worship out of, out of gold. And so he does that, and they worship him. Pretty soon they're rebelling against Moses. They are saying, we're going to take control. We're going to overthrow you, Moses, and we're going to do something here. And pretty soon all of that generation is denied entry into the promised land. All of them. Only two of them make it. I always joke with young guys who, who want to um, be, become pastors. I always tell them, um, n- none of you want Moses' ministry. You, none of you do. You, you, you don't want 500,000 people in your church, and they're all complainers, and only two of them make it to the promised land. You, you don't want that. Pretty soon, all of that generation is gone. Secondly, verse 6, fallen angels. Fallen angels. They, he says they did not stay where they were in glory. They tried to leave it. What did they do? They left their own position. They tried to take a higher one because they did not believe rightly about God. They thought they could take a higher place in heaven, and it made them arrogant. Thus, he says they're now confined to the chains of hell. They're now confi- confined to eternal change in darkness. They had eternal enjoyment of God, and they forsook it because they stopped believing the right things. And then you have Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. Sodom and Gomorrah are a picture of just how far false belief can take you. The, the entire city of Sodom and Gomorrah was in disarray except for Lot. And Lot was a pretty carnal guy. But the rest of the city didn't even didn't even believe uh, didn't even believe in God at all, and we get no in, get no inclination that they ever had an orthodox belief in God. It's it's like they were pagan from the moment they were born. But they were descendants of Adam and Eve, who did have an orthodox view of God. So at some point, Adam and Eve's descendants stopped passing on the faith. Some of them wound up in Sodom and Gomorrah, and you get where they were at that point. Generation after generation, they failed to teach their kids, and they ended up in madness. This is a word to parents and grandparents. You ultimately cannot affect seven generations from now. You don't have that kind of control, but you can certainly influence into, your, into that by what you do now, by what you do now. You have to be pouring into your kids and grandkids, teaching them the things of God. Parents must work to form people, not just form lives. That's one of the great failures of American parenting, is that parents in America are just concerned with forming lives. Let's get them everything that we can possibly get them to be good on a college resume, on a college application, to be on a resume one day. Let's make sure they have all the things I didn't have when I was a kid, and that's what's going to complete them in life. The only problem with that is... Your call as a biblical parent is not to form lives and make sure they have, you know, a bigger house than you did when you were a kid. No, it's to be forming people. It's to be forming character and worldview. That we do that, parents do that all the while letting TikTok and YouTube form their kids into people, forming their character and how they view the world. I'm a lot less concerned if Haddon makes it into a good college than I am about does he know what truth and goodness is. Does he understand what it means to be humble? Does he understand how a man should treat a woman? Does he, understand, <clears throat> does he recognize his own sinfulness and how good God is for providing grace that he can receive? That's the treasure that's going to carry on to the next generation more than his big house will. 
These are the things that inf influence the coming kids that, that aren't, aren't even here yet. Future generations won't care that your kids make six figures. The, those kids will take that, their kids will take that money and go on vacation with it, and that'll be the end of it. But if you instill character in your kids and grandkids, that's the kind of stuff they pass on to the future. And that's the kind of things that will matter at their funeral. When, when they die and somebody gives their eulogy, the, the thing that will matter is, did we instill the right things into them, not did we make sure they have a lot of money? Verse 8 says, those three examples, the Israelites, the fallen angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 8 says that they did four things. First, they relied on their own dreams. That is, not on biblical truth. They, just on how, just on their own way that they thought best. They relied on what they imagined things should be like, what, they, what just seemed right to them, which always leads to disaster. If you are the standard, if you are the standard of truth in your life, that means you can never be questioned. That means you are right on everything, and that means if anybody tries to challenge you, you, you will turn militant against them. And that means you can never grow, and you are never wrong. You can never be corrected and have to learn from it and grow and get better. You're just always right, and everything that you believe is the standard for what should be. I, I was like that at one time. I'm probably still like that now. All of us are like that now. We have to fight against that. Our culture has a great problem with doing this, don't they? If you oppose some an idea in our culture, you're canceled. You're blacklisted. Nobody should ever listen to you again. That's where our culture is, which is why they do these, these next three things. I told you four things in verse 8. The first is that they rely on their own dreams. The second is they defile the flesh. That is, they eat up sinful pleasure. They find new ways to sin all the time, and they love it. Our day is like this, and they do whatever they want. Do whatever makes you happy. Do whatever feels good. We, we've, we've all, we're, we're a lot like the book of Judges. If you know the book of Judges, like every chapter repeats the phrase, everyone did what was right in his own eye. That's pretty much where we're at. Every day, our culture comes up with new ways to sin. Even though we know there's nothing new under the sun, um, imagine that sin is like a, a pizza. Every day, our culture comes up with new topping combinations. They do. And next, they reject authority. They reject authority. When you live in sin constantly, this leads you to reject all forms of authority. We were made to... We, we, we have made self the ultimate authority. What I think is best for me is the authority that should be over my life. People don't get to tell me what to do. So our culture hates all form of those in charge, whether it be police, teachers, the government, clergy, so many more. But God put authority in place to maintain order for human flourishing. If we don't have authority, we change into madness. We change into riots in the street. I don't have to tell you that. We've seen that on the news. Of course, each of us, each of those um, issues, areas of authority are corrupted by sin. Um, police brutality does happen. Clergy have falls in ministry. Clergy end up abusing children sometimes. The government, I don't have to tell you, that place is corrupt. Um, but God put them in place. God put them in place to carry out authority in the world. And so when we reject that, 
it's, it's an evidence of our sin. Finally, I hope you can see how this is all trained together. When you believe the wrong things, you start to live the wrong way, and then you deny the things God has put into place. And fourthly, you ultimately blaspheme God. Remember, this is verse 8. You blaspheme the glorious ones. So to reject God's authority structures is ultimately to reject him. Our culture hates God. They do. The only God they like is one they get to pick and choose what he's like. That they, they get to, um, you know, like go to Cerchero's and choose everything they want in their burrito bowl. That's how they want God. That They want him to be exactly as they want him to be, rather than letting the Bible tell them who he is. Such a God that, that they get to pick and choose who he is, he's a God that doesn't exist. Our God is in the heavens. He does not change. And his name is, I am who I am. He doesn't change. We don't get to update him. We don't get to change him. He stays exactly as he is for the rest of forever. This is the natural outworking of the seeds of false doctrine. This is what comes up in the field. When you plant false doctrine in the field, this is what comes up at harvest time. Jude makes a reference here to um, verses nine, verse 9. Um, he makes a reference to a story. It's not a story in the Bible. It's a story just in Jewish tradition. Jude was a Jew, so he would have known the stories of his day. This would be like me telling a story about you know, Captain America fighting Thanos. Like He's, he's telling a story of his culture. Um, it just happens to hold to the biblical characters and not Captain America. Um, but um, he's telling a story from the culture. That, that, that Michael and the devil argued over the body of Moses. When Moses died, you remember he died alone, and God took care of his burial so that nobody would like build a shrine to him and worship him. Um, Michael and the devil, Jewish culture says, um, argued over his body. The devil said Moses belonged to him because Moses had killed somebody. Michael didn't condemn the devil in that because he didn't have the right to do that. He just said, let the Lord rebuke you. Because Michael believed the right things about authority. He, it would have been blasphemy for him to assume the role of God in that discussion, is the point Jude's trying to make. You have to stay orthodox with the right views of God. On the other hand, people, verse 10, people who blaspheme God, like what we have discussed, will just blaspheme however they want. And they eventually become animals. Verse 10, remember, this is all strung together. If you believe the wrong things, you end up living the wrong way, and ultimately it corrupts you down to the very core of what you worship. So their judgment is sure, which is what verses 11 through 13 are all about. They Again, this is a train of events. They walk in the way of Cain. Remember, um, remember the story of Cain and Abel. He killed his brother, but why did he kill his brother? Because he wasn't worshiping properly. He, um, it says that Cain just brought an offering to God of, of, the, of the things that he was making. Abel brought the first fruits. So Cain just, you know, grabbed a can of green beans in the back of his pantry that had been there for two years that he's never going to use. Abel, like, brought of the first things that he had. He brought his groceries home, and he immediately took some stuff out, and that's what he's going to take to God, and the rest he's going to put in his fridge. Like, that was the difference in their worship. Cain had false, half-hearted worship which led him to killing his brother and remember train of events the, they walked in the way of Cain so they gained the, they got nothing but gain like Balaam 
they, they wanted nothing but game, like Balaam. So if you remember Balaam, he's this guy that um, had to argue with the talking donkey in the book of Numbers. Um, Balaam agreed to curse Israel in order to gain from it, but God wouldn't let him do it. Every time he opened his mouth to curse Israel, nothing but blessing poured out. He couldn't say anything bad about them. And then a donkey came and made fun of him for it, essentially, is, is how the story goes. And so they perished like in Korah's rebellion. If you remember Korah's rebellion, it's some people that decided to rebel against Moses. They departed from him, and God literally split the ground open. They fell into a hole. Um, it's those people. And so, so they walked in the way of Cain. They didn't worship properly. And so they um, tried to start, remember, they started living wrong like like Balaam, and they met Korah's rebellion in. They fell into the ground and died. And so they will be judged. That's what verses, um, um, kind of what 14 through 16 is, is leading into. Um, Jude quotes the book of First Enoch. Now, you probably weren't aware that there is a first book of Enoch. Um, there's not in the Bible. It's not one of the biblical books. He's referring to a book probably written in between the Old and New Testament. There were 400 years between the Old and New Testament where God didn't speak, um, but there were some writings written during that time. Um, they're not inspired by God, but they are helpful to read to understand the time period between the two Testaments. Um, he's, he's quoting Enoch, and he says, um, like, they're going to be judged. They're going to be destroyed just like these people were. He quotes Enoch to, to bring that about. God is going to come and execute judgment on all and, to, and convict the ungodly of all their ungodliness. He, he's going to do that. He's going to do it. So after all of this Old Testament explanation, what's he say in verse 16? He finally just says, these people are among you. They're among you. That Remember, they've crept into the church. They've snuck in. They're hiding in the closet. They're just waiting for the right moment to jump out and get somebody. Actually, he mentions them some in 12 through 13, and they mentioned them in verse 16. So these passages flow together. Verses 12 through 13, who are these people? Well, they have no reverence for God. They are all about feeding themselves, not about serving others. They are easily swayed. They have no rock-solid ground that they stand on. You know, they change how they view an issue of the faith about every week. Well, you know, I read an, I read an article online, and I think now I believe this about this topic. And next week, I... You know, I read a tweet yesterday, and I think I flipped again on it, and I don't really know what I believe on it. He says they're fruitless. They're like a um, fruitless tree. Um, they claim to be abiding in Christ, but you see no fruit of the Spirit in their lives. They have no shame, and they have things in their lives they should be ashamed of, and they wander. You want to follow a leader who wanders around? Probably not, because that means you're going to wander too. Verse 16, they grumble. They are malcontent. They follow their own sinful desires instead of following Christ. They are loud mouths. They boast. Arrogance, you know, is one of the most disgusting qualities a person can have, um, and they have it. And they show favoritism to gain advantage. They, they show favoritism so they can get ahead. That's who these people are. That is the kind of life that false doctrine leads you to. It leads you to a life of sinful selfishness, of putting yourself first, of living in sin, of corrupting everything around you. That is what happens when you don't believe the right things. Jude has given a very strong profile of these false teachers in the church and what can happen to you if you don't take doctrine and the Christian faith 
seriously, uh, not knowing why you believe what you believe. So in light of all of that, Jude gives a statement to the church of what they should do, verses 17 through 23. He tells them what they should do. He says in verses 17 through 19, remember what Jesus and the apostles said. What did they say? They said that in the last times, people like this would pop up. They would be all over the place. We're in the last times. We've been there since Jesus rose from the dead. We're in the last period of human history, the last days. And in this time, there will be scoffers who follow ungodly passions. They will not care about going deep in the faith. They won't care about doctrine. They just care about filling up their own pockets. They will just care about boasting their own ego or their Twitter following. They will, only care about, they will only care about boasting of how many people come to their church, even though those people are all believing falsehood. These people cause division, to divisions, he says, verse, eight, verse 19. One of the saddest things for me in seminary was seeing, well, I'm sorry, I skipped a line. Um, not only do they cause divisions, they are worldly, worldly. They are like the world. One of the saddest things for me at seminary was seeing how many of my classmates who wanted to be pastors were so worldly, particularly in the area of alcohol. They loved to drink. Unfortunately, the seminary made them sign a covenant that they would not drink while they were a student, and they despised it. I had no problem signing it because I don't drink, but, but they um, didn't like it. How dare the seminary tell me I can't drink? I'm free in Christ. I can drink. They thought you could drink for the glory of God. Now, I think there's a case to be made that it's not a sin to simply take a drink of alcohol, but I don't think it's wise in our day and time. And frankly, it just makes you look pretty worldly to do it. It makes you look like the world rather than not of this world. He says they're devoid of the Spirit. Nothing frustrates me quite like as a pastor when I'm studying and trying to learn how to, how to lead the church well, nothing frustrates me quite like when a church leadership guru tries to tell me, if you just tried this leadership technique, it would revolutionize your church because it worked really well at one particular church. It's supposed to work at every church and it just doesn't work like that. And every time somebody tells me that, I just want to, I just want to scream at them like the word of God is enough. Like, I'm going to revolutionize my church by just faithfully preaching God's word and let God do the work through the Spirit. I've, I've got no, like, you know, visioneering synergy that I can take and, you know, make a new church or do something wonderful. Like, no, I'm just going to preach the word and just let God build his church because that's what he said he'd do. When you're devoid of the Spirit, you've got to come up with incredible, awesome vision ideas or incredible, awesome leadership business techniques that build the church. When when you're filled with the Spirit, just use the Word. That's all you need. That, that's all you need. That's what's worked for 2,000 years, long before you had your cool vision plan and all of that there. False teachers aren't satisfied with God's Word and God's Spirit, so they got to come up with a really cool, hip idea and, and, and do that. He says in verse 20 and 21, so he says, first, remember what the apostles said, that these people are going to come, so what do you do in light of that? He says in verse 20 and 21, keep yourself in the love of God because they're going to try to take you out of the word of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. That's what he says. That's interesting, isn't it? 
Because it's usually the other way around. It's usually that God keeps us in the palm of his hand. He will not lose us. He will never leave us or forsake us. But it's a two-sided coin. Remember in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God works in you. It's a two-sided coin. You keep yourself in the faith, but God ultimately keeps you. How do you keep yourself in God's love? He lays it out there. First, you build yourself up in the faith. If the problem at hand is false teaching, corrupting, you need in every way to grow in true teaching, to, to hold to the real faith. You need to know why you believe the things you believe. You need to be able to open your Bible and explain what you believe. Like, you need to devote time to getting to know God's word better than you do. This is not just a call for pastors. Like, you need to know why you, what the book of Colossians is about. You need to know the difference in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Like, you need to know where you stand on, the, on the, what the book of Revelation is about. Like, you need to know those things. You need to be able to defend why you believe what you do if a Jehovah's Witness shows up at your door. They'll, they'll probably run if you try, but, but you need to know. You need to be able to discern messages in the movies and TV you watch on how it holds up biblically. You need a deeper knowledge of God's word always, or you will grow stale in it. It is a fire you have to always stoke. You have to always stoke it. He says, pray in the Holy Spirit. Pray about everything. Don't just pray like God is a genie or a vending machine that you're trying to get something out of. No, pray to him and talk to him like he's a real person in your life. It's very hard for you to be led astray from Christ when you're closely walking with him. You know, it's very hard for a husband to have an affair with his wife, on, on his wife when he has a really strong relationship with his wife. But if him and his wife's relationship is stale, all it takes is a flirtatious smile from the secretary at his work, and that's all it takes, and he's gone. Do you want to prevent being led astray from Christ? Stay close to him. And finally, he says, wait for Jesus from heaven. Remember, we have a very short time here. Eternity is coming. <clears throat> the draw of immorality is, the draw of sensuality of sin is, in this life, is it promises pleasure in this life. It promises to make your days on this miserable earth enjoyable. But you only get somewhere between 70 to 90 years on this earth on average if you live out your days. And then eternity comes. And if you are with Jesus, you will have pleasures beyond anything this earth could have ever offered you. You can have your little sandbox here to play in on earth if you want, or you can have an entire never-ending beach in eternity. Which one do you want? Wait for Jesus from heaven, knowing that he will bring endless joy. Finally, verses 22 and 23, keep others in the love of God. He says, keep yourself in the love of God, and then keep others in the love of God. He says, look around. Remember what they tell you on airplanes. If you've ever flown or if you haven't flown, you probably know this is what they say. They, they say, um, in the event of a crash, the, plane, the mask will come down. Um, grab the mask and put it on yourself first before you try to help anybody else. That's what they say. Remember, keep yourself in the love of God so that you can then help others stay in the love of God. Various ways you might have to do that. Some will, he says, some will require more gentle plead, you know, have mercy on those who doubt. Others will require uh, you to be very fierce. He says, snatch them out of the fire. Um, some will simply start to doubt the truth 
and you just have to sit down and have a gentle conversation with them to remind them of the truth and bring them back on track. But he, some of them, like, literally put their foot in the lake of fire, and you have to run and grab them and pull them back real quick. That's the loving thing to do. We have to take this very seriously. This is one of my jobs as a pastor. I would argue this is even more important than um, some of the things I do related to people's health, is to keep them from leaving the faith. But this is also your job. I'm the pastor. That means people naturally hide things from me. Like I show up at people's house and they stop cussing and hide the alcohol. That's what they do. Like, like almost if I don't find out about it, God doesn't know. You know, I'm like God's elf on the shelf, apparently. But people will be more free to be who they are around a non-pastor around you. So when that happens, it's your job to confront them and help them to do what this passage says, not come report it to me so I can go handle it, because that's just awkward. Hey, um, I heard that you were uh, doing this the other day, and uh, we just got to talk about that. Okay, well, who told you? I can't tell you. can't tell you. Just somebody told me. No, just, just cut out the middleman, and let's just, you, you take care of that then. Jude is not writing to a pastor here. He's writing to a church. He's telling them, snatch other people out of the fire. Don't let them jump in the lake. We have to literally hate the garment stained by the flesh, he says. We have to love people enough to want them to remain on the right track spiritually because it's so easy that people will get off. And finally, he closes out 24 and 25, worship the God who keeps you in the faith. Perhaps the challenge would have been overwhelming for the church after all of this stuff he's just said. They were going to always have to worry that they might fall away. They might be led astray, and Jude just closes out with a doxology of praise and comfort. God is able to keep you from stumbling, he says, verse 24. Um, you're, you're scared you're going to stumble. You're, you're scared you're going to fall away. Just remember, God's able to keep you from stumbling. He's able to do that. On top of that, he will actually present you blameless in full joy before him one day. Just stay with him, and he just says, praise his, one, his wonderful name. You see, the fact is, you cannot keep yourself from stumbling completely. You can't do it. God does that. What you can do is remain close to him. Continue abiding in Christ. Continue living in his word. Continue in prayer. Continue being faithful. Don't think for a second that it's up to you to keep yourself saved. It is God. You simply abide. And you trust that God will keep you in his love forever. You have to have the simple act of staying near him, and he will do the rest. So, may the book of Jude challenge you to go deep in your faith, and may it cause you to worship the God who will keep you from stumbling. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of scripture. I thank you that you keep us in your word. You keep us saved. You don't expect us to keep ourselves saved, for we would always fall away. Lord, you keep us. And so, Lord, help us stay near you. Help us have discerning hearts to recognize truth and, and recognize falsehood. Lord, may we stay in the love of God that we may not live like the world, that we may not walk in the desires of the world and the passions of the world, but we may be not of this world. And may we wait for your son from heaven and we cry out, come soon, Lord Jesus. We're waiting for you. In Jesus' name, amen.